Welcome back, everybody. I am your host, Eric Castillo, here with the Warrior Motivation and Mindset. Oh, oh I said that backwards. Warrior Mindset and Motivation Podcast. I'm already early. I'm an hour early, people. Usually it's at 11, but I had to work around Jessica's schedule here for kids in school. But welcome back to the show. Um, I'm over here doing the podcast with veterans, and I'm also a life coach at Zimi Wellness Center and Indigenous Sovereignty. Uh, we're here with Jessica Lynch. Uh, I got her. I got an idea to get her when I was talking with Jake McLaughlin on a podcast a few uh, podcasts ago. Uh, he mentioned her name as he was using an example because of how she was a POW and things like that. And I wrote her name down, and I was like, well, I'm going to see if I can get her to come on here because I know what she went through was like, out of this world and not that many people can actually live to talk about it that are current, like modern day military. So, and that, that alone, like being able to do that totally encompasses the entire point of this podcast, you know, having that, that mindset, that drive, that, that not to give up, not quit uh, and to keep going and just to have that push as a soldier to, to drive on. Uh, and she's going to share a little bit of her story. We're going to throw some questions around and then we're going to, we're going to inspire you guys and girls to, you know, just to push on and let you guys know that you're not by yourself. So, Jessica, if you want to give everyone here a little rundown about uh, what you yourself and service and things like that, it's all yours. Yeah. Well, first of all, hi, guys. Um, thank you for having me on again. Um, so, yeah, it was 2003, I guess, when I was deployed. But of course, my story starts kind of way before that, like everybody else. I mean, I, I did have a life before the military. Um, so I grew up here in West Virginia, um, kind of a country person. Um my brother and I, uh, I actually have an, a sister too, so there's three of us, but um, my brother and I were very competitive. Um, so when he decided that, you know, like growing up, he, he wanted to play Little League Baseball, I said, absolutely, that's what I want to do too. So I joined the um, boys Little League Baseball team right along with him. So um, kind of all the way through school. So when he decided he wanted to play basketball, you know, I decided I wanted to try out for the girls basketball team. So again, we were very competitive with each other. So um, he's one year older than I am. So he was in college already when I graduated in 2001. Um, that summer uh, while he was off from or home from college. Um, and then my sister who is a year and a half younger than I should mention her too, because she's a huge part of part of our story. But um, so we were all setting kind of that summer of 2001, just kind of sitting around our house when we noticed that this car pulled up into our driveway and we're like, wait, all right, <laughs> you know, kind of looking at each other like, you know, did you invite someone? Did you? Um, so we were like, we have no idea who this, this guy is. But when he got out, instantly we noticed that, you know, it was an army recruiter. So <laughs> of course, you know, he gets out and he, you know, is walking toward us and he's very proper. And we're like, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> None of us had considered uh, joining the military, even though we have a lot of my dad's uncles um, who had served, but it wasn't something that us kids had ever considered. Um, we're huge patriotic family, but it was just something like I wanted to go to college and be a kindergarten teacher. Um, my brother was into um, electrical engineering. 
Um, so we kind of already had our lives all planned out. And, and you know, so when this Army recruiter kind of came walking toward us, we were like, oh. <laughs> all right, we're going to listen to him, but we're not really interested in what he was going to basically tell us. But every time he mentioned, you know, free college, um, traveling the world, you know, yeah. you guys have all heard the spill <laughs> of, of what they give you. I'm sure they probably it's probably the exact same story that they're still using. <laughs> um, so we're like, eh, you know, we're not kind of, you know, we're not falling for this, but every time he kept mentioning that free college, we were like, okay, so this is something that we really need to take into consideration because, you know, growing up here in West Virginia, my parents didn't have the greatest jobs. I mean, we definitely weren't living, you know, in poverty or we weren't, um, kind of poor by any means, but we didn't have a lot. Um, and of course, like I said, my brother is a year older, my year, my sister's a year and a half younger. And we knew that by putting all three of us into college at the same time, even though we would have helped our parents, you know, financially, you know, by us working, paying for college too. As you guys know, college is expensive, and we knew that my family wasn't really going to be able to afford to put all three of us in there. And um, so, again, we were talking, you know, with this recruiter, and after he had left, um, my brother and I just looked at each other and we said, "This is this is what we have to do. We have to have to we have to do this. Um, one to help out my family financially to, to take that financial burden off of them. But also the more that we kind of thought about it, like this seemed like the best career choices for, for us. Um, and then of course, you know, <laughs> seeing that army recruiter in his, uniform his class A's <laughs> I was like yeah that's <laughs> that's what I want to do <laughs> um, so before we knew it um we were standing there taking the oath and um becoming army soldiers again that was summer of 2001 so before 9-11 had even occurred so we didn't even consider that possibility that we would be sent off to war kind of immediately. Right, um, right. Of course, 9-11 hits. My brother had already went in to basic training in August of 2001, and I was still on kind of the delayed entry program. Um, so once September 11th occurred, then I went in the week after. So September 19th, I found myself at basic training. Um, of course, I was scared because I didn't know kind of, you know, with 9-11 happening, all right, how's this all work? What's what's going on right now? Um, so, but I made it through, made it through the whole, you know, um, basic training experience and then went on to uh, advanced individual training, which was at Fort Lee for supply clerk. Um, left there and went to Fort Bliss, which is in El Paso, Texas. So as I'm in El Paso and kind of really at the, honestly, at this point, I was starting to love, you know, this whole army lifestyle. Um, it was, 
hard at first to get used to wearing the same, you know, camouflage <laughs> outfit every day. <laughs> um, so I, you know, kind of took a little bit of getting used to, um, but I, I loved it. I loved being able to serve. I was um, just enjoying meeting all my different comrades from everywhere. Um, so yeah, I, I loved it. Um, and then this, um, let's see, it would have been the fall of 2002. We kind of first got that initial word that you might want to go home and see your parents, uh, your your family, I guess I should say, um, for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. Um, unfortunately, I didn't make it home for Thanksgiving. I just didn't have the, the money to go home mm -hmm. for Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I chose to go home for Christmas because that was when my brother was able to go home too. Um, so I went home and then um, had a had an awesome time kind of said my goodbyes kind of like what they my chain of command was telling us you know make sure you tell your family you love them you you know high possibility that we're getting ready to be deployed um and then february of 2003 we found ourselves sitting in kuwait and that was kind of the first initial reaction like oh shit, like <laughs> this is now yeah, getting yeah. real, like now what? Um, so we we stayed in uh, in Kuwait for approximately about a month. Um, and then I remember March 20th when, you know, President Bush declared war. Um, we had orders just to follow this long convoy north to Baghdad. Um, again, I was, I was a supply clerk, so I wasn't in control. Like everybody <laughs> had said that I, I made my unit get lost. No, I did not make my unit <laughs> get lost. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, um, we left Kuwait and, um, was just following this long convoy. And I remember the first day, everything seemed to be going well like we didn't have any issues the second day is when we started to kind of really like fall behind um we had some of the heavier vehicles with us um so i guess just that heavy machinery and by that point you know we were getting <laughs> further and further behind so of course when that dust the sand kicks up um, we were just being kind of bogged down in, in sand pits. And before we knew it, I mean, we could still see the convoy in front of us, but it was getting further and further away. And um, that's kind of when my uh, commander and first sergeant uh, made the decision that, you know, we needed to to split up. Half, um, half continue on with the convoy, and the back half of us would stay and uh, kind of pull the slower vehicles along. Um, so that's what happened. And uh, so March 20, the, the evening, I guess, of March 22nd. Um, so again, this is two days after leaving Kuwait. Um, we thought that we... <laughs> 
had found the rest of the convoy because we could see kind of lights up above us. Um, by the morning of March 23rd, you know, these lights are kind of getting closer and closer to us. Um, we are all fatigued. We really hadn't slept. We didn't eat. I mean, we took times to time out to kind of, you know, snack on MREs. Um, uh, I remember, honestly, and this is kind of kind of embarrassing, but I remember us stopping um, to even use the restroom because that's some people don't think about that. Like, all right, mm -hmm. well, we didn't sleep, we didn't eat, but um, we're out in the middle of this desert. And uh, at this point, there's uh, 33 United States soldiers with us um, and 17 vehicles. And I think there was only three girls. So I think the three of us girls, we found this only bush in the middle of the desert. And it was just kind of like a little tiny, little tiny bush. And that's kind of where we went to hunker while the boys were all that way. Um, but I remember us stopping, you know, I think twice to do that, to, to use the restroom. So we were fatigued, we were tired, we were sleepy. I mean, you name it. Um, it, things just weren't going our way. But that morning of March 23rd, we see the lights up above and, and we head toward that. And we finally come to kind of Blacktop Road. And at this point, um, we obviously had the decision to turn to the right, turn to the left. Um, unfortunately, we decided to go toward the lights that we had saw. My um, commander still continued to think that that was uh, kind of headlights, lights from this huge convoy that we had been following. Um, unfortunately, it led us across the Euphrates River Bridge into a town called Nazaria. Once we got into Nazaria, we knew that things just didn't feel right. Like something was not wasn't right. I mean, we had that gloomy kind of feeling about it that, that, you know, something was about to happen. And the more that we stayed kind of in this, um, right inside the city, because we kind of pulled off and kind of gathered our thoughts about what we were about to do. But we saw this um, white pickup, and it continuously started making passes by us. And um, I guess eventually, like after after everything had happened, uh, we were told that they were gathering intel, you know, how many how many soldiers, how many vehicles, what kind of weapons we were um, using. Um, so my uh, commander made the decision that we need to go on further. Uh, we made it about halfway into this um, city. And the further and further we got, we noticed that these Iraqis were, you know, standing on top of the rooftops. They were hiding in trenches, like they were hiding behind their vehicles, wherever that they could kind of take cover. Um, and again, that was kind of the moment of we need to get out of here. Um, we didn't. We, we obviously we were locked, we were loaded, we were ready, but we didn't didn't fire off a shot until we heard their first shot go off. And once that happened, 
it was then that kind of second dreaded gunshot. And before we knew it, we were just in a full-fledged ambush attack. Um, they were coming from every direction and we were just completely outnumbered because it felt like the entire city had just surrounded us. And to kind of give, I mean, obviously most of these are veterans, so they understand. Um, but it, it honestly felt like we were in the middle of a pond with with nowhere to run, nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, that we were just literally setting ducks in the middle of this road and could not get away from them. Um, at this point, um, because my five ton had ended up, uh, the transfer case ended up busting. Um, so I'm in the uh, Humvee with my best friend, my first sergeant, or my best friend is driving, I guess I should say. My best friend's driving. My um, first sergeant is in the uh, in the passenger seat. And then we picked up two other soldiers to get them out of out of harm's way once the uh, uh, shooting started happening. So we're in this Humvee and we're we're just going as fast as we could. Um, and I remember, you know, just bullets flying everywhere and then nothing. I don't, um, we still aren't sure exactly what happened to me to make me uh, blackout, but I went unconscious. Like I have kind of no memory of anything after that. Um, but we were eventually hit on the right side of the Humvee by a rocket propelled grenade, which, um, ended up causing Lori to uh, lose control of the vehicle. And we ended up slamming into the back of a um, disabled semi. So when we, when we crashed, um, Lori ended up hitting her head off the steering wheel and uh, dying later of head trauma. And then um, the three men were all shot and killed. For me, I was was the only survivor. And um, when the Iraqis came around to determine who was uh, KIA or who was survived, who had survived, um, they noticed that I was unconscious, but they noticed that I was breathing. So they took me, um, yanked me out of the out of the Humvee, they took me to one of Saddam's palaces where they stripped me of all of my military gear. And, um, and then later um, transported me to a local hospital. Um, while, while I was there in the palace, they, um, sorry, it's kind of hard to talk about, but they took, it's okay, okay. They took like metal kind of objects and um, ended up breaking my uh, tibia in my in my left leg and um, snapped my humerus bone in my right arm. Um, and then, of course, my back was broken at the fourth and fifth lumbar. Um, so at this point, I'm still unconscious, but... Um, so when I wake up and I'm laying there on this bed and I 
open my eyes and I see these Iraqi men standing over top of me and they're looking down at me. So my first reaction is to, you know, to jump, to jerk, to get away from, from them. And that's when I realized that I couldn't move. I couldn't feel anything from my waist down. Um, I knew that my head was throbbing. Again, I didn't know what was wrong, but I could tell that um, I definitely had severe injuries and that I could not get up. I couldn't set up. I couldn't obviously walk. I couldn't, I couldn't get away from them. So I started asking questions. And there was one Iraqi who could speak kind of what I called broken English. So he could say a few words in English. And, um, but it wasn't enough that we could really kind of have a full conversation. It was just enough that he could understand a little bit of what I was trying to say. And I could understand a little bit of what he was trying to, to convey to me. Um, but I, I laid there and I tried to ask, you know, what happened? Where was my comrades? Um, just kind of anything to get any kind of information as to why I was lying there on this bed. And basically the care of these are enemies um, all alone. And um, I obviously got no... <laughs> no answers, no, no clues, nothing as to what happened. Um, I remember a few days later, obviously I'm scared. I'm 19 years old at this time. Um, and I remember a few days into my captivity, they ended up taking me down to the operating room. And, um, I remember them transporting me over onto the operating table and I'm sitting there and I'm staring into the bright shining light that's <laughs> kind of uh, pointed down at me. They had already turned it on and I'm, I'm looking up at it and I'm trying to ask questions of, you know, what's wrong? What are they about to do? And in the distance, um, I guess on the other side of the, ER, um, I could hear our operating room, I could hear this young child, young Iraqi boy just screaming. And the more that he kind of cried out, the more that it scared me. Um, first of all, again, I didn't know what, what they were about to do to me. But as I laid there, um, I remember I didn't have any kind of IVs in, nothing for them to even start surgery or anything like that. But I remember them putting that Austin mask over my face and um, the one Iraqi telling me to to count and take deep breaths, you know, that whole, <laughs> whole uh, spiel. Um, and I'm like, frantically, I'm crying and I'm begging and just pleading these Iraqis to please stop that no no matter what it is, just leave me alone, return me to the Americans and that they'll fix me when, when I get back into their care. And um, yeah, eventually 
they stopped and they removed the oxygen mask and they put my body back over onto the bed and, and wheeled me back upstairs. Um, and I found out after I had been rescued, but I found out that they were about to amputate my left leg. Um, when I had been first taken to the um, hospital after the ambush, and again, remember I was still still in that unconscious state, um, they had actually surgically went in and removed my uh, left femur bone out of my body, and they replaced it with a 1940s era rod that was unsterilized. Um, so just over, you know, even a few days that I had been in captivity, um, that unsterilized rod. And first of all, it was it was fit for a man. So I'm only five foot two. Um, so the the length of it, you know, it wasn't clean. It wasn't sterilized. It had caused a severe infection to set um, throughout my body and to my leg. And so they were um, planning just to amputate the leg just to to get rid of the infection. Um, but thankfully, I mean, I I don't know what I don't make I don't know what made them them stop, but they they stopped and again they uh, wheeled me back upstairs and at that point I was scared to I was I was scared to sleep. I was scared to, you know, even to close my eyes, even though I was so tired and fatigued and and just exhausted, mentally exhausted. Um I was I was afraid of what what they would do to me. So I um tried to fight it as long as I could. And um I remember a couple of days after uh the whole operating room incident, um they told me that they were gonna put me in a ambulance and that they were gonna return me to the Americans. Um course I couldn't do anything about it <laughs> so they loaded me into to an ambulance um, and as we were driving away I remember shots being fired at the ambulance and uh, we ended up turning around um, and uh, instead of them taking me back to the hospital we actually ended up um, what they were telling me again, I don't, <laughs> I don't know directions. I didn't know any of this at the time. I'm just going off of what um, kind of re was reported afterwards. But they ended up taking me to uh, an abandoned building on the outskirts of town that where the electricity had already been shut off. Um, so they took me. It's completely again. It's completely abandoned. Um, nobody's in this building. It's it's completely dark. But these Iraqis, they or Iraqi men, they take me, they put me in this building and, um, and then they leave. And I remember thinking kind of, I had two choices. I could yell, I could scream, I could, you know, draw as much as attention to myself as I humanly could, or I could lay there in silence because my fear was that if I made all this noise and it drew the attention of say the Fetihin or, you know, the militiamen um, 
that that's the hands that I did not want to be in. Like, um, so I chose to kind of lay there in silence and just hope and pray that those good Iraqi guys would come back to get me. Um, and I don't, again, I don't know how many days, um, kind of this uh, occurred over, but I remember, you know, being able to see kind of, um, a little bit of light so I could see when it was uh, nighttime and, and I would watch the, the sun go up and the sun go down and, and all while just, just lying there on this, in this dark banded room by myself. Um, thankfully the, the guys did come back. They got me, they um, took me back to the hospital and uh, I remember them kind of moving me around throughout the hospital quite a few times, you know, just, just keep, keep shuffling me from, from room to room. Um, but on the, the night of April 1st, I knew that something was completely different about that night than any other day that I had been in captivity. And um, I could hear, you know, helicopters outside. I could hear Humvees that were, you know, really close. I mean, it sounded like they were literally just kind of outside of your, your front door. Um, but I could hear, I could hear all this noise and then I could hear gunshots going off in the distance and kind of bombs exploding just, and I thought, oh my gosh, they, they don't know that I'm in here and they're about to kind of take over this hospital. And then I heard where is Private Lynch being called out from the the hallway? And instantly, and I know this is horrible, but my thought went to these are kind of the bad guys, and um, they're trying to trying to to find my location. And um, even though it was in English and I could hear it as plain as day, um, I guess just the nervousness of, of being held and, you know, all these emotions that I had been, been through. Um, but they, uh, at the, at the time that everything was happening, I was in this little tiny, tiny, tiny room. And, um, the two Iraqi men were in there with me, one that was standing by the window, one was standing by the door. And, uh, they were both, uh, uh eventually <laughs> let out. And um, the next thing I knew, you know, I could see, you know, U.S. SEALs and, and uh, my gosh, Marines, like it was, <laughs> it was one of the most satisfying sights, you know, just seeing these Rangers and SEALs and just standing, standing there um, next to me. But I remember one of the SEALs, um, uh, taking off the American flag off of his uniform and, and placing it in my hand and said, we're, we're Americans and we're here to take you home. And uh, that was one of the, <laughs> the best days of my life, even though um, it definitely was um, chaotic and, and stressful for me because anytime that they moved me, I was just in so much pain. Um, but they, um, 
they whisked me out of there and uh, took me to Germany. And uh, so once I got to Germany, I was able to to really find out exactly what had um, had occurred, you know, injury wise. And um, but yeah, I had a head laceration and you know a huge scar that runs all the way up the top of my my head. Um, again, my uh, arm was broken. My right arm was broken. Um, so there's a rod in place there. My back was broken at the fourth and fifth lumbar. So there's a cage there. Um, once I made it to Germany, they were able to take out that um, nasty rod, <laughs> put in a clean rod, a sterilized. Um, they were able to save my leg, thankfully. Um, they removed the um, um, the broken tibia bone and replaced that with a rod. And then my right foot, when they were pulling me out of the Humvee, um, because I was in, uh, well, I was sitting on top of the transmission hump when we ended up in the ambush hitting the back of that semi. So my body actually kind of flung forward, which is how they're thinking that I ended up breaking my back was just the, the, the force coming forward. Um, since I was already kind of unconscious, I wasn't able to stop myself. Um, so um, when my body flung forward, my right foot went under the passenger seat. So when the Iraqis jerked me out, they actually twisted my foot kind of backwards. Um, so there's rods, pens, screws, plates. Um, it's been fused to kind of hold it all together. Um, so I am <laughs> definitely full of of uh metal but metal. <laughs> i'm just thankful that that i'm here and and that you know i'm able to talk about my experience and um you know again just so blessed and and thankful that you know we have heroes that that were able to come in and and you know kind of put their risk their lives at risk to to save me. So yeah, I mean, it was definitely a crazy, crazy nine days of being in captivity. But um, honestly, the worst part was just the recovery, the the after. Um, because once that all hit, and uh, I went from Germany on to Walter Reed. And um, obviously, again, I wasn't allowed talking, I wasn't allowed, you know, sharing my story. Um, they weren't publishing any pictures of me, of me being in the hospital or anything like that. So I was kind of just, everything that the public was getting was just kind of hearsay. Um, so I really didn't get to talk until after July 22nd when I was released from the military. So from the time I was rescued April 1st to July, all these stories started circulating. Um, I'm sure everyone kind of remembers the whole media that, you know, really blew up um, after I had came home. Um, again, I was accused of my unit being lost. I was accused that I was the one that, you know, and I'm like, guys, wait, if you're not in the military and you don't understand that privates, PFCs <laughs> have no control, right? We don't have control of, of what's 
happening or what's being, you know, done. Um, again, I was knocked unconscious. So um, I got blamed for my unit, um, half of my unit being killed. And I'm like, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> and you know, I, I don't, I mean, the whole um, media circus afterward was kind of one of the worst parts. Um, again, we did have, we, we lost 11 that day in the ambush. Um, and as, as, oh my gosh, as much as I would love to go back to that day and, and be able to, you know, take any one of their places as probably any of these veterans that's on your podcast listening right now. I mean, they understand that once you have a comrade like that, you, you want to do anything to take their place. And that was definitely me. Um, I would have done anything to even take my friend's place because she had two small children. They were three and five at the time that, um, that she died and and I would have done anything to go back and and take her place. But um yeah, so it was just crazy, but it was one of the the hardest parts transitioning from, you know, you know, army <laughs> to now a POW to now um, you know, just trying my best to to learn how to walk again, to be able to stand up. Um you know, it's been 17, almost 18 years. So March will be 18 years that this occurred. And I'm still in physical therapy. And I don't think people realize that. And not even just with me, because, you know, I'm I'm just one person out of this huge military that, um, that is still facing injuries and, you know, PTSD. It's still it's a huge thing that, that we are still living with every single day. Um, but yeah, I mean... So 18 years later, and I'm still still going through physical therapy, still trying to to learn how to walk properly, just so that when I hit 50 years old, I'm not struggling as bad as what I am now as a 37 year old. Um, but yeah, so I think um, that transitioning period, just leaving leaving kind of the military lifestyle, that POW. Um, status, I guess you could say, to civilian life was was probably one of the hardest things that I kind of had to do. Um, but I instantly knew that I wanted to go back to school because that was my whole reasoning of going into the military in the first place was to get that education. Um, so that was something that I put kind of a goal in front of me to work toward um, so that I was not just sitting at home and, and um, you know, kind of not stressing, but, you know, reliving this day-to-day -day experience that I went through. Um, so I had to give myself a reason as to why I needed to survive, why I wanted to continue to keep going and, and to strive and to push. Um, so yeah, that's that was one of the the main things that I did was you know again give myself a goal and I did it. I, I graduated college. I'm now a um, 
educational teacher. I, I love it. Um, I'm subbing this year just because of all the craziness that that is going on. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's one of the main things that I can tell anyone is to find something that you enjoy, even if it's a hobby, whether it's going back to school, whatever, working on cars, whatever it is, um, just find something that you are passionate about and that you enjoy to, you know, to occupy your time to to find something that you just love to do. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, because I know we're kind of running out of time, but I definitely want to say that um, perseverance, that's what got me through. Um, that's to never give up, you know, that attitude to, to keep on going. And that's really what helped me survive one, the the days in captivity was that I wanted to be able to come home to my family. I wanted to be able to, to see them again. Um, so it was just something that I kept pushing myself uh, to to hold on just one more day. And, and then that continued kind of as my motto, as I was going through, you know, that, you know, walking stage to learn how to walk again, as you know, just keep. Ah! <laughs> oh, I think we lost, I think we lost her for a second. Let's give her a second to get back, but a uh, compelling, really story is something else to tell you. Uh, I didn't have anything to ask because I just wanted her to share her uh, story. Uh, Not really write any questions because there was no need to ask any platform for her to just, I know she's done it a bunch of times, but you know, even still that much time has passed. Still got to keep sharing it because people don't know it. I didn't know the whole story. So actually getting to hear the story actually helped um, put things into perspective. She got booted out. We'll give her a second to come back in. So since it's just me, let me uh, message her. I think she lost her connection, which is okay. Kind of the same thing happened when we had Arnie on the show. He just got up and walked away. So... (laughs) I just told her to come on back in, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't have any questions. There was, there was nothing to, to ask. Oh, um, she lost, oh, she lost power in the building. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, let me see if I can get her set up here. Could tell by the way it went down. So, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, let me let me handle this real quick. So this is kind of a unconventional. Give her some directions to see if she can get back on here real quick. We got like what 
43 math in public is hard, like 12, 13, 14 minutes. But um, <clears throat> for those listening, as you heard her before she uh, lost the power, perseverance, like just to even go through that and to just not give up was uh incredible. Like, I mean, anyone can say what they'll do when they're in a situation like that until it like really happens because you don't know what condition you're being. People can say, oh, I'll do this and I'll fight in this and I'll do this and I'll kick. Look at her situation, broken back, the broken, like broken femur, broken arm, jacked up foot. You ain't fighting anything. You got too much pain going on. So you have to try to keep it together and compose yourself and just keep, keep pushing on with that, with that fighting mentality that you're going to be all right, that you're going to be okay. And you have to keep pushing. She's writing me right now. Um, But yeah, that's, I mean, just all of that, like, I don't I think during that time, uh, that happened all in, uh, for those who missed it, in April 2003. Um, I believe that my unit was in Afghanistan at that time. Uh, she's apologizing. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, we were, I think we were deployed and we didn't really know the whole story either. Oh, there she goes. She just popped back on. Hold on. <laughs> there you go. I kind of went on a little dialogue and kind of just talked a little bit, you know, as you can see me going here. It's funny because the same thing kind of happened when I had um, Arnie Costell. He was a former uh, Yankees pitcher and uh, wanted to talk about someone he knew that was uh, service. And, uh, and he was also in the service. He had a question with like the audio and he kind of just got up and walked away like in the <laughs> and went to go, went to go get his friend. And I'm like, where are you going? And he, he literally got up, left, closed the door and, <laughs> and he just left. And I was just like, okay, so this is new. Alrighty then. And then he comes back and he's like, what are you saying? And I just, because he hates the Dodgers. So I just told him, I was like, well, I just said that you don't like the Dodgers and, but you're okay. You know, it kind of just was throwing some some slack at him but no um i mean i was i was over here saying that and while you were down there in your deployment i believe i was deployed in afghanistan i joined in 2000 also i joined in uh july and i was in afghanistan attached with uh special forces down there in kandahar so in hearing on the receptive side of that uh we didn't really know too much of it i mean i was only a lower enlisted at the time i was just a specialist promotable at the time and uh, I didn't really know what had happened, like, until, like, we got, like, back. Because, like, at that time, you know, there was hardly any internet. There was, like, no, you know, there was there was nothing in, in theater like that. And as they were kind of saying that, like, because I do remember they say, oh, she got her lost. And I'm like, wait, I, I me thinking I, at that time when I found out I was a sergeant, I'm like, hold on. I'm like, hold on. She got lost. Was she driving? No. Well, then. Was she a TC, the truck commander? No. How, how the fuck she get her lost? How did how she get them lost? You know, like, and I was like, wait, she, the privates don't control a convoy. Like, they they might be an assistant convoy commander, maybe if they're really, really, really squared away. And, you know, some of the sergeants are kind of, like, shadowing him or her. But, like, I was hearing some of the things that they were saying and stuff, and I was like, I was like, it doesn't make sense. People who were in knew, like, you yeah. know, like, 
they, 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 it was that. And it's just, it's incredible how like the media like spins stuff. So, so crazy. And even today, the way they like to spin things, it's like, I don't, I don't even read the news anymore. Like I kind of just read, like I read news, but when it starts getting like political and things and I don't read it because they, they throw their own spin to it. Even like last week I had a, a rapper named soldier hard, um, in one of the, I found a bio online. Uh, it said some pretty nasty stuff about him. And he's like, no, you need to take that off because that never happened. And I was like, oh, I was like, my bad. That was like on four different web sources, you know, like of your bio. And he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, that's not the way it went down. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had to change that, you know? So it's like, and you, you experienced the the same thing. And yeah, it's unfortunate that, that that happened that way. Um, yeah. I mean, sadly, I mean, and I even went to Congress. I mean, I know we're kind of, digressing here, but I, I even went to Congress um, for the whole Pat Tillman situation where they kind of made up the fabricated stories about, you know, him. And I was like, all right, look, so you did it to me. And at least I kind of, you know, where I could talk about it, I could tell, you know, my side of the story even though I couldn't do it until I was out of the military. But I mean, I eventually was able to tell my side of the story where Pat and so many others who kind of the same situation, they're not being able to, to talk and, and tell their side of the story. So to me, it was important to, to be able to, you know, we don't need all these heroes created. We have them. I mean, yeah probably thousands of them, you know, that you know of every single day. And, and even though they're not being, you know, forefront on the media, they're still there. And um, that's one of the, the kind of the things that I looked at when I was um, kind of going through my recovery period was, you know, there's so many that were part of the rescue that was, you know, even if they weren't, right there in the the hospital with me there were so many like the ones um i actually kind of met him he was down in florida and he was one of the sills that uh kind of found um the bodies of my comrades because they had taken their bodies and um kind of buried them in shallow graves right outside of the hospital so i guess in one sense it was um luck thankful i guess that that they were um doing kind of surveying around the hospital because they kind of literally stumbled upon where where my comrades were were buried right. in the shallow graves um but i remember him telling me the story of you know you know he was he was saddened that he wasn't directly related to um to my rescue inside but he said one of the best things that he had ever done uh, during his military service was to be able to dig up the bodies of of my comrades and be able to return them home and right. i was like you know what that is that story has touched me so deeply and and i you know what <laughs> like i don't even care that he wasn't beside me he was i mean yeah indirectly he was because he's one of the ones and one of 
the many um wasn't him just alone as as we know military i mean you you guys know that i mean it takes quite a few to to pull off these missions um but i remember that that was one of the stories that will forever you know stick with me of of him you know being able to return uh return my comrades bodies back here to America to their families so that they could have you know those proper goodbyes um but yeah so um again we kind of digressed with with the whole media story but but yeah I mean I think that's that's part of the unfortunate process of of you know when you kind of hit one of the highlight stories of of our times um with this is that you know, unfortunately, you get fabricated stories that that goes along with you know the the hype. Um, yeah. So, but, then, but to talk about um, that seal who found, and this is another thing I like to talk about too, is a lot, and even people who are in now that everybody's role is important. Yes. You know, um, even if you're not like in the fight and you're say on the outside your job mm-hmm. is still important because if, if you fall on the outside now the people inside are screwed yes you know being i've been in both situations you know so it's like every job is important and even those who don't deploy this it's still important because they're providing mm-hmm. support to the people who are forward deployed so now when you take that and you shift it to a civilian mindset now you're who you are as a person is important yeah. because now you're a part of a veteran community and you can't, you can't isolate and you can't fall because now, because if you fall, how many are you going to take down with you and you not even know it, not to include just the veteran community. You got your family, you got your friends. So now you're creating this domino effect of things, you know, and and I know that it's difficult because I was in that place too, where I was by myself and I kind of just shut everybody out, but I didn't realize the damage I was doing um to everyone around so it's when when you compare both of the stories it's 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 the same thing now everybody's role is important it's just now you have to shift roles and now do something good even though you're not in the service no more and the same thing for you uh you and i know your transition was and it's still hellacious and but you just can't throw your hands up and be like oh i don't want to do this no more because it's easy to do that but i mean i i have I have PTSD, yes, but I know you. Oh, I can't, there's not even to compare because of all of that. Like, you can easily just say, fuck, I'm not doing anything no more. I'm going to lay down on the ground. Kids go make macaroni and cheese or a sandwich. Um, someone will go to the store. I'm just going to lay here. I'm going to drink. Um, maybe I'll find some drugs to do or something. It's so easy to fall down that rabbit hole, you know, because you just want the pain to go away. But yeah. in do in doing that, all you're doing is putting a bandaid on, and then eventually you got to rip the bandaid off. So yeah. in, instead I mean, of absolutely, you are 100, <laughs> percent and I can guarantee everybody else is nodding their head right along along with us. <laughs> is that it's absolutely so true, and um, one of the kind of main things that I had to to figure out was that mindset, like you're talking about was how do I shift my mindset from, you know, 2003 to now, you know, 2021, like, how do I, how do I get 
you know, how do I not really leave it behind, but how do I put that behind me so that I can continue to move on? And because like you said, when I'm in a bad mood, it puts the rest of my family in a bad mood. And, you know, I have a 14 year old daughter, so she's already moody <laughs> the way that it is. She does not need my <laughs> negativity of what I went through to kind of put <laughs> over on her because, um, you know, <laughs> teenagers are crazy in this like virtual <laughs> schooling that they are doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think mindset was one of the most crucial things that I had to learn was, you know, how do I, how do I, you know, like you said, transition, how do I get my you know, head on straight and, and kind of move on? Um, even though, you know, for the longest time, I didn't want to, I didn't want to move on because I felt that if I, moved on with my life, if I carried on and continued, you know, to have a life after, you know, so many of my comrades were, were killed, like, you know, there was just so much kind of that survivor's guilt that, um, you know, veterans experience. And I know I definitely did was, you know, just knowing that I survived and, and the other four did not, I mean, that was huge on me. So, you know, being able to kind of, yeah, learn to, okay, it's, it's okay for me to, to want to go to school, to want to have a family now, to want to, you know, continue on with my life and not, be stuck in that 2003 time frame of, you know, poor pity me, I guess I should right. say like, and that was one thing that I was like, I cannot do. I, I wanted to, to push myself so hard in physical therapy and I have, um, I'm still not 100% better and I probably never will be just because of the severity of, you know, especially the back being broken. And then, you know, the left leg, I still um, have nerve damage throughout the entire leg. So I don't have any filling. So basically, it is sort of like I have, um, I don't know, a prosthetic, but um, my leg is there. It's just... (laughs) kind of useless, <laughs> but it gets me around. And I am very thankful that, you know, I still, still have it. Obviously I'm not trying to, to, to take away from or make light of the situation of those ones who, you know, didn't come home with all their limbs um, because that is definitely not, not what yeah. I'm trying to say, but no, you know, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I think at some point we kind of, we have to laugh about it and, and, <laughs> kind of, you know, make the best of the situation. And even though I am, I look fine from, from the exterior, you know, there's so much going on, you know, under the skin that, um, and and again, I know that I'm not alone in this, whether it's, you know, PTSD, whether it's TBI, whether it's, you know, nerve damage, you know, whatever. I mean, there's so many of us that come back and, um, we look fine from the outside, 
but on the inside, things are slowly, you know, eating at us. And uh, right. again, mindset, like you were talking about, you got to be able to get your mindset. You got to be able to, you know, want to have that um, never give up attitude, that perseverance. And you want to, to be able to do better for your kids or to be able to provide for, you know, your family, your spouses, your, your parents, whatever it happens to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of one of the, the biggest things is um, right. just being able to, to say, you know what, I, I'm here for a reason. Now let's make the best of the situation. Right. And that's, that's a perfect way to, to close it off. Um, that's that's a very good closing there for veterans. Just take that in, take the whole story in, and just know that you're not alone. People have similar experiences, can't compare one to another. So um, uh, there's a, it's just a, we're a community, and just this is what this is for. So I appreciate you, Jessica, for coming on and talking and uh, sharing your story. And I and I know it's still difficult because I can see it. And, you know, it's okay, but like I say, you know, the more you share and the more you share a story in general, it's easier to talk about. And now you can process different emotions. You can even, you know, just be more out with it. And maybe even as you share the story, you leave some things out. And then now you're sharing just a little bit more than what you initially did because of the comfort. So I appreciate you for doing that. Um, I appreciate everybody for watching even though our, we had our little blackout period for that. Technology, <laughs> so, you gotta love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, that's okay. And then what I'll do for that part is I'll kind of just chop that out for Instagram because they like to be all restricted with their minutes. So I'll chop that out. Um, but thank you for coming on. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, next week, I got a, a, a cool guy coming on. Uh, if you guys seen a uh, combat veteran, Drew Anthony, his partner, uh, just on the uh, the white guy, he's he's a funny guy. Got him to commit to come on next week, so that should be a pretty good podcast too. He's a veteran, to kind of see how he ended up and what he's doing now and things like that. So that'll be a good one. So stay tuned, people, for that. Um, Jessica, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Um, and then everybody, see you guys next week.